Welcome to Heroes of Brand Protection Podcast, Episode 26. I'm your host, Daniel Shapiro, Vice President of Strategic Partnerships here at Redpoints, the world's fastest growing digital revenue recovery platform with a mission to make the internet safer for both brands and consumers. In this podcast, we will share stories and industry insights from some of the most leading experts in brand protection and anti-counterfeit from many different industries. We are so happy you could join us today, and please check out all of our episodes on www.redpoints.com forward slash podcast. Today, we are thrilled to be speaking with Russ Jacobs, Director, Managing Corporate Counsel for Intellectual Property at Starbucks Corporation. Not often do we come across a brand protection expert who started his personal career at the Guggenheim Museum with a passion about art and curation. But that's Russ. Even more interesting is how his journey took him to the National Hockey League, also known as the NHL. Do you want to find out how a journey like this can lead a person to one of the most successful brands in the world? Well, listen to this podcast and you'll find out. Russ, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. We're excited to learn more about you and your story. Thank you, Daniel, so much for the invitation. I really appreciate the opportunity and look forward to speaking with you more. Hey, listen, before we get started, I wanted to ask you a question, which is, if you could be a superhero, which one would you be? That is a great question. I think that I would be Thor. That's just a fun one that I've enjoyed watching recently because of the strength. And it's a ridiculous strength, but it is just such a fun, fun power that he has. Awesome. And listen, you could get a lot done with a big hammer like that. Exactly. So Russ, you've had a long career in your specialty. And I wonder if there's a funny story or instance you tend to tell people when you're out with that sort of circulates back in your head of this funny, crazy thing that happened to you once. Do you have a story like that or something that sticks out that you could share with us? Yeah, when I first started off, before actually I entered the legal field, I worked at museums and I worked at the Guggenheim Museum in New York. And one of the most fun things that I was able to do there was to lead tours of the art of the motorcycle exhibit. So it was just a, a fun and funny experience to be able to have people go up and down the ramps on the motorcycles as they were enjoying the artwork there. Well, that's a really cool story, Russ. I don't know that I ever saw the motorcycles there, but that's certainly awesome. So from those who are listening to us today, tell us what you want to be when you grow up or maybe what you wanted to be when you do grow up. Sure. What did I want to be when I grew up? So I, at one point, my parents would tease me because I wanted, I said I wanted to run a bookstore. And I think that what that was tapping into was my interest in the creative world, but at the same time, kind of the business side of it and how things run. And that's been a thread throughout my career as I've been going on is really having an interest on the creative side and helping to support that, but having more of a, of a business role in supporting those industries. That's great. And do you find yourself now when you're walking the streets of a new city looking for a cool bookstore or is that interest sort of all gone now? That's all gone. So I, I read a lot now, but I have to tell you, I get most of my books from the library. So I enjoy putting them on a Kindle e-reader and then just can stack them up and enjoy reading that way. That makes a lot of sense. And then following up on that question, 
because it's such a unique answer, what did you want to study in school? And what was your first job? And then maybe what do you think you were going to do with that degree? Sure. So I studied art history and Spanish at the University of Michigan undergrad. And as I mentioned, I had internships and jobs at museums, and I expected that I would become a museum curator. And as I had those internships and talked to other people at the museum, what I found most interesting actually was what the lawyers did. I thought that how they helped support the the mission of the organizations in a way that isn't necessarily so public facing, but that is essential in order to think through a lot of the risk elements. I found that that quite interesting. So that led me to law school and I expected that I would be working as a art lawyer after I graduated and I did to a certain extent. So I represented an auction house when I was in private practice, represented artists and galleries. In my early career, I also had an intellectual property practice and civil litigation practice. And that led me eventually to focus more on brand protection and on uh, uh, intellectual property practice. When I was in law school, I also had the great fortune of having a year-long internship at the National Hockey League, where I worked in their intellectual property group and was able to really learn at a pragmatic, business-focused way how trademarks work. The NHL would provide support not only for the trademarks and copyrights of the league, but also of the member teams too. So getting to see how those interactions happened when you're working for a league and having to think about not only the interests of the league, but also of the interests of the individual teams and how that plays out started developing in me a really strong understanding of client relations and how to be an effective advocate. That's an interesting move. So what was the path from the NHL that took you to Starbucks and how did that go for you? Yeah. So immediately after law school, I worked in private practice in New York at a firm and had a practice focused on intellectual property and litigation. I loved the combination of the two of those because I could understand the strategy for longer litigation and disputes and how that impacted the portfolio strategy that you would have on the IP side. After I moved from New York to Seattle, I started at an internet law firm, which advised a lot of different clients in different industries within the digital space and had a lot of IP issues and matters that I would advise on. But as a startup lawyer for a lot of our clients that were just getting going, also had the opportunity to advise them on just any kind of litigation or agreements that they would have, which I appreciated, made me a more well-rounded attorney. And while I was there, an opportunity came open at Starbucks. And I went in-house at Starbucks as a IP attorney focused mostly on trademarks and was at Starbucks for nine years. And then about three and a half years ago, I left and I went to the National Court Appointed Special Advocate Guardian at Lightham Association for Children, known as National CASA GAL, which is a membership association with 950 members, which are state and local organizations that support volunteer best interest advocacy for children who have experienced abuse or neglect. So what the state and local organizations do is they work with volunteers who are advocating for children in dependency proceedings. And when I tell people about my experience there, 
Sometimes they ask questions about how that relates to brand enforcement work or brand protection, my IP background, but it's a membership association where the members get the benefit of the brand and the intellectual property. So that is the connection that, that I was able to draw, but that's also one of the main reasons why they brought me on and why they were interested in having me is that I had that IP background and there was a need in the, in the network to have a strong IP focus because the brand is essential for the success that you have with all the stakeholders there. So as a CASA organization, you rely on the reputation of the CASA brand in order to get the volunteers that you need and in order to maintain those relationships with the courts, which are essential, and also with other stakeholders. So your legislature, your other elected officials, and then also any donors that you might have. And that really brought home to me to the importance of brand protection because there, when you're talking about unauthorized use of a trademark or people trading on the on the name of, of CASA, the consequences there are that a child might be, a child and family might be impacted. So if someone is trying to claim an affiliation with a CASA organization and it's unauthorized and there actually is no affiliation, then that child isn't getting the advocacy that is subject to the quality controls to the supervision, to all of those elements that are put in place to make sure that the, the quality meets the expectations of, of the courts and, and that the families. And then I left um, earlier this year and returned to Starbucks in a different role. So now I lead the intellectual property practice globally. We have responsibility for clearance and portfolio management and then intellectual property disputes globally. Well, that's a great story, Russ. You know, I always enjoy asking that question to our guests because I think most of us don't really know how we ended up in this space. I mean, as a kid, we didn't think that we'd end up here through our high school days or our college days, but somehow there's a gravitational pull that gets us into this space. But maybe for those who are listening today who do not do what I do, which is I start every morning with a drive through Starbucks coffee, maybe share a little bit about the story of Starbucks, the size of the company, where you're located, and where you're based. Sure. So Starbucks has a mission to inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. Starbucks serves premium specialty coffee to customers at over 35,000 stores in over 80 countries and territories. Additionally, customers can enjoy Starbucks products in the grocery aisle and through food service accounts, for example, through catering at a hotel or a convention center. We have our global support center in Seattle, and I work out of the global support center in Seattle. Very, very nice. And if you could describe Starbucks in one sentence, how would you describe that? Starbucks uses coffee to create moments of connection. That's a really great sentence, Russ. You know, I think about it pre-COVID, of course, I spent a lot of times sitting in a Starbucks, looking at the people, watching people do business at the tables watching interactions. And I think probably from my perspective, I always watched a lot of exciting things happening at the different tables in a Starbucks, you know, during COVID, obviously without that opportunity for people to sit in there, I missed that piece, but I love that sentence because of that description. But maybe when I think about your role today in Starbucks, now that you're back there, what are some of the most difficult tasks you have as an intellectual property leader in the company? We have really innovative partners 
within Starbucks that we call our employees partners. And I think one of the biggest challenges that, that we have is just staying on top of each other and trying to move as quickly as we can. One of the biggest challenges within Starbucks that we see now is related, as you were talking about, Daniel, to the changes during the pandemic that we saw to the usage of stores. Fortunately, we have really strong relationships with our customers and demand at Starbucks remains very strong and we haven't really seen a significant decline in demand, but that puts pressure on our physical stores. And so trying to work at real-time pace to address all of the issues that we have within within the store to come up with new operating models and new innovation. And from an IP perspective, that means that we are clearing new products, developing new filing strategies and protection strategies, and then actually doing enforcement so that we have strong protections for all of the things that we need inside our stores. Yes, that makes a lot of sense, Russ. And particularly because I think Starbucks is so global. I imagine the pressure it puts on making sure your intellectual property is protected, not only in the U.S., but everywhere in the world that you're doing business. You're right. So we have more stores in the U.S. than in any other market, but China is our second largest market and grows quite rapidly. So Starbucks has 6,000 stores in China this year and opens at least one store a day on average in China. And that's just one of the 80 plus jurisdictions in which we operate. And each of them has their own unique challenges from an IP standpoint as well. Wow. When you think about that sort of confluence of e-commerce and brick and mortar, you really play both sides of the field. When people order products and drinks ahead of time, come into the store. But do you think about those two things separately? That is, how does the future of matching brick and mortar and e-commerce come together for you guys? Sure. So for our Starbucks retail stores, our cafes, those remain um, an essential part of our portfolio. And But how people use them is different. As you were alluding to, people using the, the app for mobile order and pay, as well as mobile order and delivery, that continues to be a growing part of our business as well. So when we think about an IP strategy, we have to monitor and enforce in every channel. That is essential to us. And we still see infringement, despite the rapid growth of e-commerce, we still see brick and mortar infringement. And that's not just in countries without as extensively developed e-commerce ecosystems, but that's globally. The, The challenge too is how do you balance that from a protection and enforcement strategy so that you're putting the right resources into each of those. Great, Russ. My follow-up question might be, and you may have answered this a little bit in your description, but when you think of the top three strategies for solving intellectual property, how do you think about that from a strategic perspective? The first one I'll mention is online monitoring, and our approach to that has changed over the years. It is increasingly important, not only because of the infringement that we find online, but because it can give us insight into trends about the types of infringements that we're seeing, which we can draw from that into our bricks and mortar or offline enforcement strategy as well. Second is trainings for customs officers and law enforcement, which remains essential to maintain and build those relationships. They are so helpful and really want to partner with 
brands, but also have limited time and limited resources. So really have to figure out the best way to give them the information that they need. And then the last is, let's just say generally stakeholder engagement. And that's all of the stakeholders that are, that are out there. So it's our internal stakeholders on the business side, as well as any vendors that we have, plus service providers, and then also with our customers as well. One of our best sources of finding out about infringements is from our customers who are such strong advocates for the brand that when they see something that looks off, then they engage with us. Yes, that's great. And I, I think the component that I think sometimes brands miss is that consumer engagement. And I think it's a critical piece. And of course, you, you mentioned that in your, in your third objective. What's your thoughts on this? You know, a lot of people in the industry sometimes refer to the whack-a-mole strategy and knock down one, another one pops up. How does your thought process go when you think about that whack-a-mole strategy? So when we think about whack-a-mole, that problem will always persist because no matter what you do, new infringements will come up. But I like to think about the whack-a-mole issue from the lens of how you define success. So if you get frustrated because you keep having new infringements come up, and so that means that you say that you're not having success because you're never at zero, then you'll never be satisfied. But if you look at success as defining particular campaigns that you'll do, so maybe you focus, uh, let's talk about online, you focus on one platform and you want to reduce your levels to zero there for a while, you can do that. Or if you want to focus on a particular product category or focus on the source of products. So to do an investigation where you can actually then shut down the manufacturing, then you can actually succeed. So you need to set realistic but achievable goals that will have an impact on the problem. So then you don't view it as whack-a-mole because you're actually having a plan with an end goal in, in mind. Yeah, I think you're right. It's never about getting to zero. It's about looking for the successes. And some brands, the success might be reducing visibility. To your point, going after a particular marketplace or category is a definition of success. And I think that's great. And I think people probably today should stay away from the option of getting to zero. And I know you guys are planning on launching your own NFT collection. And obviously, there's some opportunities there. Could you share with us what you think the challenges and the opportunities are in the new launch of your NFT? Sure. So with Web3 in general, as I as I look at it and I see the, the players coming in and, and those that have been established for a little bit of time, community and engagement stand out as important drivers for Web3, that you have new ways of building that community and those channels of communication which really ties in to Starbucks mission and values. As I mentioned, Starbucks customers, when they come into the store, really value the moments of connection that they have with the baristas, but then also as a place where they can get to know people in their community. Web3 allows similar interactions, but in a new format. So the way that you can enter into the metaverse or that you can enter into a a blockchain community and have those interactions in a decentralized way opens up opportunities for, for brands and ways that for Starbucks, there can be a lot of alignment. I think one of the challenges going in is the lack of consumer understanding the technology can mystify a lot of people. 
And there's also, as with any emerging technology, there are some bad actors or just some riskier uses that even if people don't have bad intentions, just when they're launching something new, that there are unexpected outcomes or consequences on that. So really trying to provide a safe opportunity for users in a new technology where the norms aren't always established or when they don't have a lot of familiarity with how to navigate the technology, that will that will present challenges. Yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense, right? We never know exactly what the outcome of something will be, but as long as we're thinking about what kinds of opportunities and what kind of challenges exist, we're better prepared. One more question I was going to ask you is, sometimes in our industry, when we think of brand protection people or IP lawyers, we put them all in one bucket. We we think they're all the same. Is there something you'd like to share with us to sort of debunk the theory that we're all the same in this profession? Yeah, I think a lot of the times when I tell people what I do or, or people are asking about it, then they think about press reports or public comments on social media about enforcement efforts. And they don't understand what a cease and desist letter is, for example. So then when you explain a cease and desist letter is a letter that you send as a rights holder that says, hey, we saw that you were doing this and we have concerns about that. And then what comes after that is let's talk or please stop or I'm going to sue you immediately, right? There's a lot of misconception about what that actually means. And so the idea that sending a letter in and of itself is a legally binding court order that you have sought and obtained a judgment against someone or that you're being overly aggressive can be hard to understand for people who aren't in the industry. And so when you take a step back and say, these actually are intellectual property rights that we have and we have an obligation to enforce them and that we have consumer protection reasons to do that. Because if you have are allowing use of your brand in connection with products that don't meet your quality standards that might present health and safety risks, that comes back to your brand. So you have a brand reputation issue, but also that consumers can be be hurt by that. So for us to send a, a letter that says, hi, we found this seems like a problem for us, but maybe you can explain it something that there's something that we're not seeing. To me, as, as a professional in this space, that seems like a reasonable way of approaching it. But sometimes it seems overly aggressive when you're on the outside and not really understanding the, the issues that are involved here. That's a great answer, Russ. And I think that we all do something different in the industry. And while we're similar, there are a lot of differences how we approach the job. The person just before you in our podcast was Jane Darden who's the former director of trademarks and brand protection at TTI, which is Tektronics Industries. And she wanted to know from you is, what are the commonalities and differences in the approach of counterfeits when you think about it country by country? I love the question. Thanks, Jane, for the question. When we look at the counterfeits that, as they vary from country to country, the first thing that we notice is the volumes in a particular country and what that tells us about the strength of our brand. So if we have better brand recognition in a country, then we'll see, we tend to see higher levels of infringement, higher levels of counterfeits, but then also the product types too. So what is relevant in the marketplace in each country in terms of what types of products do you find counterfeit more often? So then we, we take a more customized approach 
based on, on those factors. And if it's food and beverage, then we have to work with local authorities from the health and safety aspect more than we might from a merchandise. We're there. It's different agencies that we're working with. And then also, I would say in terms of how we work with customs. So is it a country of manufacture where most of the goods are sold domestically or are they coming in as imports? So what is the strategy that we need to have when dealing with customs in terms of trying to block products coming in or or do we need to focus on export? Yes, very challenging indeed. But thank you for your answer. It's very helpful. As we get toward the end of our podcast, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, what kind of advice would you give someone who wanted to pursue a career similar to yours? Maybe someone who's graduated or getting their bachelor's degree or someone who's graduating in law school. What would you want to share with them? Yeah, I think if you want to come into this space, which is a wonderful space to come into, talk to people who are in the space because there's so many different roles that you can play in here. And you don't have to be an attorney to work in this space. So don't think that if you don't have a role, if that's not an option for you, or if you don't have a desire to do that, working in law enforcement or, or with law enforcement from that perspective is a, is a great role that you can have. And then also doing investigations either in law enforcement or for an agency. And no matter what you do, Understanding how investigations work and being really good at doing research is an essential, an essential component. Just finding a counterfeit product is not enough to be successful. You have to understand how the product flows, where it's coming from, and all of those steps in the supply chain along the way. So really just try to understand more how supply chains work in authorized markets, but then also how they work for counterfeit products. You're totally right. That's really great advice. And, you know, you can even end up being an old tech guy like myself in brand protection space, right? When you think about your journey, Russ, is there someone who inspired you in your career? And what was it about them that inspired you from that person? Yeah, so many people have inspired me. And I feel so fortunate to have had all of the mentors and sponsors throughout my time. I'll mention one, Mary Sotis, who was the head of intellectual property at the National Hockey League when I was an intern there. She unfortunately has passed on since then, but she had a great way of challenging me as a law student so early in my legal career to think about what was actually achievable and pragmatic. And I've brought that with me going forward. So when you get in this space, it can be very emotional for a lot of people. So for a brand owner, when they see their products misused, their brands misused, or when you have products that are threatening the reputation of a brand, you have to acknowledge that emotion, but you also have to be able to be pragmatic in your approach and think about how do you actually achieve your goals on this as well. And I appreciated that from from Mary. Well, thank you for sharing that personal story with us. Uh, What a great mentor. Following your podcast, Russ, we'll be speaking with Colette Durst, who's the Chief Trademark Counsel at 3M. What would you like to ask her so that we can be sure to ask her that question and we'll learn something interesting about Colette? Well, Colette has had a pretty remarkable couple of years as 3M has had to deal with the counterfeit products relating to all all of the, the healthcare space and with masks and other associated products with the pandemic. So what I would ask 
Colette is how that changed her priorities as a, as an IP leader within 3M to adjust to the urgency of the counterfeits that were coming in and presented a health and safety risk globally. We will certainly make sure to ask Colette that question. You'll stay tuned, I'm sure, to hear her answer. But before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you four questions in 15 seconds. Are you ready, Russ, for the rapid fire? I'm ready. All right. Favorite music, band, or singer? Andrew Bird. Favorite book? Headlong by Michael Frayn. If you could eat only one food for the rest of your life, which one would it be? Chickpeas. What is your go-to resource to keep yourself updated in the world of brand protection? WTR World Trademark Review. Well, Russ, thank you for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure to learn more about you, and thank you for sharing your time with us. Absolutely. Thank you for the time. Really appreciate this whole series. It was very interesting to learn about your journey, your insights in the intellectual property space. I would like to highlight a couple of takeaways that I thought were interesting and I want to share with all of you. Number one, with Starbucks having 35,000 stores around the world, with the biggest market being the U.S., China is now the second biggest market with 8,000 stores and one new store opening every day. This poses a significant brand protection challenge for Russ and his team. Number two, for Starbucks, their intellectual property infringements cover both their merchandising as well as food and beverage. The challenge here is created in protecting both product as well as consumer health and safety. Number three, with the emergence of Web3, and Starbucks launching its own NFT, Russ and his team are quickly developing an intellectual property strategy that protects their brand in this new arena. Well, that's it for us today. If you like what you heard, check out our next inspiring personal story from another hero of brand protection. You can follow us on all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, as well as Amazon Music, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Make it a good day.